Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, really glad to be with you this morning. Thank you so much to our, our, our band um, for leading us so powerfully. It's, um, as Jenny said last week, if, you're, if you are one of those people that has just had a habit of skipping through the worship, I would just really encourage you to go back and, and worship with us. It was um, very beautiful. My name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here on the east side, and I'm going to read to us from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 16, verses 13 to 18, and, uh, and then pray, and then we'll, we'll just jump on in uh, to today's sermon. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have no rival, that you have no equal. Thank you that as we hear these words today, that Peter spoke in response, an overflow of, of, of joy in his heart of who you are, who he was standing in the midst of. God, we thank you. Uh, that what we just sang is true. And so, Lord, enlarge our hearts to see and love and, and follow and worship Jesus today. Um, we ask these things in his name. Amen. So we're in the series where we're, we're, we're calling the series Citizens. It's a two-month study in the Gospel of Matthew and the teachings of Jesus, which are um, at, their, at their heart teachings about the kingdom of God. And specifically, in, in our context, what does it mean for us to be citizens in that kingdom of God? How do, we, how do we live out what Jesus is calling us into when he calls us into a kingdom? The kingdom of God is not some abstract spiritual idea. It is not some place that you and I go and we die. It is a socio-political vision of Jesus, which means that it is, a, it is holistic. It has to do with how we understand power, how we understand wealth, how we view people. Uh, it is a daily lived practice and worldview. And this is what the kingdom of God is, and it stands in sharp contrast to the other socioeconomic visions, the other uh, kingdoms of both his day and all the way up to our day today. So you may ask, just for example, like what? What's an example? Um, well, one example would be materialism and consumerism. Uh, materialism and consumerism is what Jesus called the belief that life is... is um, is made up of the acquisition of things. And he said, don't live your life as though it is made up of the acquisition uh, of, of goods. And most of us would say, well, I'm not really doing that. But the reality is, is that most of us actually, if we actually got down to our dreams, like what is it we're hoping in right now? We actually do believe that my life would be remarkably better. The things that I'm frustrated by in this world would be significantly upgraded if I had more money, if my house was bigger, if I lived in a different school district, if I had newer tech or whatever it is. But more than that, consumerism isn't just about stuff. It also trains us to think about people and to turn people into goods and commodities. So for example, we, we'll even do this in the sorts of friends that we choose. We tend to choose friends that we feel like are on par or maybe even slightly above us socially, economically, physically. We're less likely to befriend people who we feel like are beneath or below us in those 
three categories. And so what consumerism does ultimately is it detaches us from one another. Meanwhile, making the declaration that it is attaching us all the while, but it's not. It actually turns us into deeply selfish individualists who are more concerned with our own comfort than with the comfort of others. So we're willing to, even unwittingly, to disadvantage our neighbor if it means my kids get into the school that, they want, that I want them to be in, or I get the sort of stores in my neighborhood that I want, or my part of town is protected from outside element that I would consider to be disruptive or unsafe, and I'm willing to disadvantage people around me. More than that, consumerism disconnects us from the lived human cost of my lifestyle. It hides from us the realities of the systems and structures around the world that exploit the poor and the environment to prop up the lifestyle of the West. And so in all these ways, consumerism and materialism, it's a, it is a, a full-bodied uh, system. It's a kingdom. It's a socioeconomic vision that is subversive. It is invisible, but it affects the whole life. Or another example would be um, uh, uh, partisan identity. And so partisan identity begins with this basic premise that uh, the problems on the earth, the problems in society are particularly caused by, the, by an unequal distribution of power. And that what we need to do is we need to right size that. Either the government has too much power and it needs to go back to the people or the people have too much power and it needs to go back to the government. Either way, these are the problems they have to do with power distribution and the solutions therefore are political in nature. And whatever your specific political solution is, the way that partisan identity as a worldview, a socioeconomic vision, the way that it, it, tur it turns us into people who have deep, uh, uh, full-hearted allegiance to this particular party. And it's a zeal. It actually manifests itself as a fundamentalist zeal, which is not simply for an idea, but wildly against all other ideas, ideas that are counter to this. So it actually creates enemies of anyone who's not in my tribe and camp. I saw some really amazing statistics this week. Pew Research has been uh, tracking polarization in our country for, for decades. And recently, it's, it's gotten very bad. Pew recently said that 90% of Republicans and 86% of Democrats, uh, when polled, say they have an unfavorable or a very unfavorable view of the other party. They're not just neutral towards them. They're not like slightly curious. They're just unfavorable. Like, I do not like these people. And even more troubling than that, 15% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats, when polled, reported that they, quote, thought the country would be better off if large numbers of members of the other party died like died. So 20% of Democrats, one in five Democrats polled, said the country would be a lot better if there were a lot more dead Republicans. Now that is ridiculous and almost a little funny, it's so absurd. But listen, those ideas are in the church. Like these ideas are present in our own body. Like we actually as a people who are supposed to be citizens of another kind of kingdom are, are being sucked up into a worldview, into a kingdom that is telling us your partisan identity is preeminent. It should define reality for you. And First John, the letter that the Apostle John wrote to the church, he says, my brothers and sisters, how can we say that we love God who we've never seen if we hate our brother and sister who we have seen? And so what Jesus calls us into is a kingdom, a worldview, a way of living that is holistic. It, it covers us socially and materially and economically and politically, and it affects everything. And this is what we're looking at for these, for these weeks together. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into our story. It's a very simple story. Um, and what we'll begin with is this idea. Jesus positions himself among the gods of his day. And how do we know that? 
he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which doesn't mean anything to you or to most of us, but Caesarea Philippi was a two-day walk. It was out of Jesus's way. He's not on his way somewhere. He takes them on a two-day journey to go here on purpose because what Caesarea Philippi was, was it was the intersection of the most prominent pagan cultic practices and religions of his day in that part of the world. So there was the worship of Pan that took place there, the Greek god of fertility uh, and sexuality. So it was a place with all sorts of erotic cultic practices and temples and so on. It was also a place that was uh, a home to the worship of Baal and the worship of the emperor, imperial cult. So all these are taking place there and you can still go today. You can see this ornately carved rock face where all these different gods are carved into the rock and there's a grotto there that was used as a temple where all sorts of dark and deviant things happened there. And Jesus takes his friends on a two-day journey to go and stand in front of this wall and say, but who do you think that I am? Of all the competing narratives in the world at that time, that it's, oh, it's about sex, it's about sexual expression and hedonism, and, and that's where we find our identity. No, it's about power, it's about militarism, it's about, it's about uh, domination. And Jesus says, well, what narrative are you listening to? Who do you think I am? Which is the second thing we see. Jesus asks his followers to decide who he is. And the answer, first of all, they give him is about what everyone else is saying about him and what everyone else is saying is wrong. They're saying, you're a prophet, essentially. You're a powerful man of God, but you're not the Messiah. The Messiah is the storied, mythic figure from the Old Testament, the promised one. Ha-Mashiach is the Hebrew, and it literally means the anointed one. The anointed one who was going to stand in the line of David, who was going to rule on the throne of David and return to Israel self-governance and glory and kick out Gentile overlords and occupiers and, and once and for all bring about the age and era of glory for the nation of Israel. And this is who the Messiah is. He's a king. He's a warrior. And Jesus says, well, who do the people say I am? And there the people are saying, well, you're clearly not that because you're not militaristic. You're not authoritative. You're not here to overthrow anything, apparently. You're you must be a prophet. You must be a disruptor. You must be a person who's here to have a hard thing to say. But, but other than that, that's all you are is just your words. Except for Peter. Peter says, no, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God, which is not a, it's not a, a, a Christological, theological statement Peter is making there. He's talking about the kingship of Jesus when he calls him the son of God. And, and, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, bless you, Peter, because you never would have figured that out just by looking at me. You, you must have been told that by my father because I haven't checked the boxes that the Messiah needs to check to be believed as the king. And yet, he says, blessed are you, you're right. That is who I am. I am the Messiah. I am the king. And what does it mean to have Jesus as king? Uh, very few of us have any idea what it means to have a king. We haven't lived in a monarchy. Even those in our church who happen to have lived in a monarchy, uh, like, like a constitutional monarchy for some time, it's not the sort of classical monarchy that they would have understood in this day. Uh, it's, it's hedged in by other bodies of government. There's a constitution that actually uh, limits the ruler, uh, the, the, the king or queen's power. But a classic monarchy is simply this. The king has absolute authority. 
The king or the queen has final say. They're not, they're not hedged in by a checks and balances, limited government, multiple branches. Not, none of that is true. What the king says, what the queen says, this is, this is what happens. And the thing that makes the kingdom of God a kingdom is that it has a king. A king who has absolute say over his subjects' lives. Which is a terrifying prospect if the king is a tyrant or even just a normal person. I don't want to have absolute authority. I don't want anyone I've ever met to have absolute authority over, my, over anyone's life. That's a terrifying prospect. But if the king was Jesus, the third thing I want to say to you today is more, it's sort of drawn out of the text, but I think it has to be said at this point. All of us who are watching this and listening to this, all of us have a king. We already have one. And you can only have one king in your life. You can only have one. I was talking to a friend uh, this week, talking to someone this week who I've been um, exploring Christianity with for the last few months. And we're reading the Gospel of Mark together now, which is really cool. And he has no background in Christianity. So he doesn't, he doesn't know anything. He's asking all the basic questions. So we just started Mark this week. And he asks very, very obviously, he's like, how do we know Mark is telling the truth? And I said, well, you know, um, as a matter of fact, Mark was Peter's secretary, and Peter was an eyewitness, and so this is an eyewitness account, but written down by a secretary. And then he says, but how do we know that Peter's not embellishing and exaggerating these stories, like, like any guy would do if he was trying to make a good story? Which is a great question. Really what he's asking is, how do I believe that the Bible offers a reliable witness of history? Can I believe that the Bible is telling the truth about history? And I tried really hard to answer it the best I could. Because obviously I think it, it does, especially around the, the accounts of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, at the end of sort of trying to answer it, I, I said, I want you to know, like, you need to ask the most skeptical, critical questions of this you possibly can. You should kick the tire of every sentence in this book. Because the Bible is not presenting Jesus to you and me as a philosopher to be considered and put alongside the other world, world views. It is presenting Jesus to us as nothing less than the king to whom we should surrender our whole life. And if you're not asking the most critical, cynical, skeptical questions, honest questions, you're not actually taking this, uh, you're not doing justice to what it's claiming. You're, you're not taking this seriously enough. Jesus is presented to you and me in the Bible as nothing less than the king before whom all other authorities fall. It's not to say that you and I won't have other authorities in our life or other voices we're listening to. There will be other philosophies. There will be other principles that guide us. But when there is a friction in my life, when there's a rub that comes up between the way and the teaching of Jesus and the, principles, the other principles that I'm living my life by, Jesus wins. You can only have one king. And we already all have one king. We've already decided what that thing is. When different pieces of data come in, something trumps, something decides this is what I'm going to follow. What does that mean? Well, it means very simply this. It means that you cannot be a Christian and a party-line Democrat. You cannot be a Christian and a party-line Republican. 
there will always be some place where there will be a dissonance between the platform of a party and the teachings of Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus trumps it. Jesus has to come on top. Jesus has to, has to have the final say and the final authority. That's actually what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. It doesn't mean you don't vote. It doesn't mean you're not engaged in the political sphere. Not at all. We all should be, actually. It's part of our citizenship. But to understand that to be a Christian is to be a citizen of a kingdom in which Jesus, not anything else, has the final say over my life. And yet, let's just be honest, none of us like that idea. We are all postmodernists, and postmodernism is, at its root, it is a rejection of that very kind of authority. By discrediting language, it is sought to discredit all authority structures because if words now have no real meaning or no final meaning, but it's determined in context subjectively, then we don't have any final authority. This is the world that you and I are living in. And because of that, what many of us have done with the teachings of Jesus, what many of us have done with Christianity, is we've sought to do what Mark Sayers calls live in the kingdom but without the king. And I just want to say to you, finally, the kingdom without the king is not the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom without the king is not the kingdom of God. It is a version of Christianity that many of us are settling for because it satisfies our existential longing for justice, and it satisfies our existential longing for transcendence, this idea that we're part of a larger story, and we want those things. Nope. We don't want to just be like a random mistake on a blue dot in the middle of a big cosmic chaotic accident. That's not what we, we desire to be a part of some sort of larger thing. It, it gives meaning and purpose to our life. And so because of that, we, we look to the kingdom of God to offer some kind of story to live in, to give some sort of ground for the justice that we desire and we feel in our bones should be there. And yet if we're not actually listening or following the way of Jesus, if we're not actually letting him be king, we're just, we're fooling ourselves. What we're living in is an illusion. Because what we've actually done is gone through the teachings of Christianity and by piecemeal we've decided which parts we want to keep and which parts we want to reject. And of course that means it's not the kingdom of God at all. It's the kingdom of me. It's the kingdom where I get to actually have the final say over what is true. But the reason that the kingdom of God provides the story that makes sense of our lives and the reason it provides the justice that we all long for in our bones is because it is ruled by a righteous judge who's going to, in the end, make all things right on the earth. That's why, because it actually has, at its pinnacle, a person who's going to exact the things on the earth that our hearts all long for. And these aren't just random abstract ideas that live in the ether somewhere, but they're rooted in real history. They're based on the crucifixion of Jesus. They come out of the real life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. And in our attempt to try to outsmart organized religion, in our attempt to try to outsmart colonizing religion, which has, in the name of authority, used by broken people just like me, has done so much damage to the world and hurt so many civilizations throughout history. In our attempt to be smarter than that and to outsmart these things and, and figure out something more sophisticated, what we actually end up doing is rejecting the very person who rules at the center that makes these things possible. It is the actual story of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the coming return of Jesus to rule the nations. It is these things that gave songs to slaves in cotton fields. Not some random idea, some good way of life, 
but a real history of a real man who walked out of an empty tomb and now calls you and me to follow and to surrender and submit our lives to. And this, anything other than that, anything other than that leaves us with nothing more than a sophisticated sounding house of cards that's built on the shifting sands of popular sentiment. And what Jesus calls you and me to is to follow him intrinsically, fully, completely, and utterly to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to you and me, who do you say that I am? Because who you say I am, it will shape what kingdom you're living in. It will change what kingdom you are a citizen of. And I believe, of course, that Jesus is in fact the king. He is the centerpiece of history and he's the culmination of all things. He is what we sang just moments ago. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is, he is the king. As our bishop Todd Hunter loves to say, I believe that Jesus is currently living the most interesting and consequential life possible as the superintendent of the world. That's what he's doing. He is living the most interesting and consequential life possible as the superintendent of the world. And that's what it means for Jesus to be our king. And so the question before you and me today is who is our king? Who has the final say? Like when the things rub up against one another. Jesus is asking you that question today.